First Kings chapter 13. First Kings 13. Just like to thank everyone for coming out this morning. It's great to see the church so well filled during this holiday period. Also like to thank everyone that were praying for me and a small team of us and went over to preach at the Sodomite Parade in London just a few weekends ago. There was about six of us, I think, went over. We teamed up with a few brethren over in London. There was about 25 of us all together. Uh, we preached for over five hours. That's how long it took the parade to pass our location. There's about 30,000 on the parade. There's about a million people there spectating. But we had a really good time, and the Word of God was faithfully preached. And then on the Sunday, uh, we went to Hyde Park. We preached to the Muslims at Speaker's Corner. And then on the Sunday evening, we went down to Westminster, and we preached uh, just outside the gates of Westminster, and we called on that nest of vipers to repent and to come to Christ. So it was a really, really good, worthwhile weekend, and I thank you all for your thoughts and your prayers. So 1 Kings chapter 13. And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord. And he said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out, and it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he put forth against him, dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar was also rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored him again, and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me, and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way, and he returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. Verse 14. And went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that came from Judah? And he said, I am. And then he said unto him, Come home with me, and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread, nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou came. He said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. 
but he lied unto him. And so he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. And it came to pass as he sat at the table that the word of the Lord came unto the old prophet that brought him back. And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but came back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread nor drink water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchre of thy fathers. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the ass to wit for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him. Verse 29. And the prophet took up the carcass of the man of God and laid it upon the ass, brought it back, and the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his carcass in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And it came to pass, after he had buried him, that he spake to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the sepulchre wherein the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. We'll end our reading there. and We trust the Lord to bless the public reading of his precious word to us uh, this morning. King David had reigned for 40 years, but he was now dead. His son, King Solomon, had also reigned for 40 years, but he was now dead. And God had used these men to build up and firmly establish the kingdom of Israel into a strong monarchy and, in fact, world superpower. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he comes to the throne. He takes bad advice and basically he wrecks the place. You see, godly men can spend decades building up the work of God only for others to come in to take it over and destroy it. The whole world at this time was pagan. In fact, the only nation in the world that truly worshipped God was Israel. And yet it was God's will for this nation to be split in two. The two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they remain under King Rehoboam. But the ten northern tribes under King Jeroboam, they had everything. They had the wealth, they had the land, they had the population, except for one thing. They had no temple. The temple was south of the border in Jerusalem. They had no temple in the north, and therefore they had no presence of God. So Jeroboam, he, he doesn't want the people in his jurisdiction to travel south to worship in Jerusalem because he basically fears that he will lose their loyalty. And so he makes a political calculation and he sets up his own system of worship in the north. And then the unthinkable happens. He sets up two golden calves to worship, one in Dan, but the other closer to the border with Judah in Bethel. Now, folks, this was unbelievable. But unbelievable things do happen and are happening today. Who would have thought that the Church of England would appoint a transgender woman as Archdeacon of Bolton and Salford and bless the sin of same-sex marriage, or that drag queens would be employed in churches, or that banks would be closing the accounts of Christians because they filled in an online survey that objected to the bank's promotion of LGBT? Yes, brothers and sisters, the net is slowly closing in around us. 
So don't be worrying too much about your money because very soon it's going to be worthless. Who would have thought that Westminster would pass legislation just last month called RSE, the Relationship and Sexuality Education, to make it compulsory to teach primary school children about masturbation, pornography, sexual techniques, and to encourage them to engage in same-sex relationships. But it is happening, and this dirty filth must be resisted because Satan is behind it. We must pray against it. And then, parents, put feet to your prayers by contacting school principals and boards of governors and let them know that you will not tolerate it. Some of the northern priests here had fled south when the border had been established. They had left everything behind because they saw what was coming. And folks, I hope and pray that you see what is coming ahead of us. It really takes great faith these days to be an atheist when you see end-time events unfold before your very eyes. Now, the people here, they didn't really think that the calf, the golden calf, was God, but it was a visible representation to, to give them help when worshipping. God's people worship in spirit and in truth, but carnal people need something physical, and that's why false religion needs statues and relics and crucifixes. King David never used idols to worship. It was an abomination. David was the standard of a good king, but Jeroboam here was the standard of a bad king, and he led his nation into idolatry. Jeroboam might have said to his people at that time, listen, all that I am doing now is for your convenience. You won't have to travel to Jerusalem. You'll have brand new altars. You'll have a new priesthood. All the other nations will envy you. This is all for your benefit. And of course, that's what they told us when they closed the churches. This is for your benefit. This is for your health. This will save lives. And meanwhile, of course, they kept the off-licenses open. They partied in 10 Downing Street. And the health secretary, well, he practiced social distancing by cheating on his wife. President Reagan once said, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And when the government tells us to make, to take the mark of the beast, they'll say things like, oh, well, it's to stop the money laundering. It'll raise billions for the treasury. It'll stop the fraud. It'll save the NHS. It'll prevent crime. It's for your convenience. So it will benefit you. But no, it won't. It won't benefit you. And friends, it is coming. It is coming. You try to use cash in London to, to use public transport, and you'll not get very far. It's coming. And so a new religion is being established here. The pilgrims are standing around the bottom of the altar. The ashes of the sacrifice are smoldering. The new king is now top priest of this new religion, and he's standing probably at the top of a spiral ramp at the top of the altar, very much like the Tower of Babel, and the whole thing is all very pagan. In ancient times, there were mystery religions in Babylon. The name given to the top priest of those religions was Pontifex Maximus, and he was supposed to be the chief bridge builder between heaven and earth. History tells us that when the Persian Empire cracked down on those religions, they fled to a city in Turkey called Pergamon. 
And there in Pergamon, the high priest of the ancient religions, going back to the Tower of Babel, conferred upon Caesar this title of Pontifex Maximus, meaning the king as high priest and bridge between heaven and earth. And when the Caesars eventually left the scene, they were replaced, of course, by the popes. And the title of Pontifex Maximus transferred to them. And it still appears today on buildings and monuments and coins dating back to the Renaissance period. The derivative of Pontifex is, of course, Pontiff. When you hear in the news these days about the Pontiff saying this and the Pontiff doing that, what they are really saying is the high priest of the pagan mystery religions that date back to the Tower of Babel just said this or just did that. J.C. Ryle once said, Romanism is a gigantic system of church worship, sacrament worship, Mary worship, saint worship, image worship, relic worship, and priest worship. And in one word, Romanism is a huge organized idolatry. Vatican means hill of the soothsayer, which means fortune teller. So brothers and sisters, I hope you appreciate the Reformation and thank God for men like Martin Luther. If you really love people that are being damned by these lies, then you will tell them the truth. You will. Jeroboam has now made himself the bridge between heaven and earth. But all of a sudden, the proceedings are abruptly interrupted by a single messenger from God who has crossed the border from Jerusalem, which is only about 10 miles away. And first of all, we want to look here this morning at the obedience of this man of God. You know, God doesn't send an army from Judah. God doesn't need an army from Judah. He just sends one faithful man on a mission with one message to proclaim because we know that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We don't know his name. We don't need to know his name. He is nothing. We are nothing. It is God who at all times must get all the glory. He is just known as the man of God with a mandate to speak and then to leave, and that's all we know about him. In verse 2, the man of God cries out against the altar. Now, Jeroboam, he's standing there in his religious robes and regalia, but the man of God ignores him. You see, Jeroboam is nothing. It is Satan who is behind the altar, and the man of God condemns it. He prophesies the splitting of the altar and the spilling of the ashes and the burning of the pagan priests on that altar by King Josiah. The former would happen immediately, but the latter wouldn't happen for another 300 years. And we can read about that in 2 Kings 23. In fact, Josiah makes a lot of changes in that chapter, including breaking down the houses of the Sodomites. God knows that the longer Jeroboam persists in this false religious system, the harder his heart will become. And God has no wish for him to perish. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so he sends his prophet here with urgency. Isn't God good that he would send his servants to warn wicked, the wicked of the consequences of their sins and command them to repent? What a wonderful, kind, loving, gracious, and merciful Savior we serve. You see, the gospel is not God hatefully saying, turn to me or I will send you to hell. No, friends, the gospel is God's mercy and grace saying, listen, you're already going to hell. 
you're already condemned. But if you come to me, I will save you. The man of God displays a special boldness here, like that of John the Baptist when he challenged King Herod about the legitimacy of his divorce and his incestuous remarriage. You see, it takes a special type of courage to tell sinners to repent. And that's why some preachers simply don't go there. They don't have the courage. The man of God didn't hand Jeroboam a letter. He didn't send him an anonymous email, nor did he whisper into Jeroboam's ear. No, he went right into the belly of the beast here. And in verse 2, he cries out with a loud voice. He wasn't ashamed. He wasn't afraid to preach against this sin or to call for repentance. In a day when many preachers have become whimpering poodles, we can thank God for the Rottweilers who are not afraid or ashamed to faithfully preach the gospel of Christ in the pulpits and on the streets. We can thank God this morning for the Elijahs and the Elishas, for the Peters, for the Pauls. Thank God for the man of God that I had the privilege of meeting in London a year ago who takes his opportunity to stand behind the, the politicians who are being interviewed just outside the Houses of Parliament. And on national television, holds up a huge sign calling for the nation to repent. And you know, that man does more for the kingdom of God in 30 seconds than the archbishop in that city would do in a lifetime. The man of God preached directly to the altar which must have caused the pilgrims that were standing around that day to think to themselves, well, if God's wrath is fastened on this calf, this altar, this man-made structure, then how shall we escape? On Friday the 2nd of June, the steeple of a 160-year-old church in Massachusetts was struck by lightning, and the whole building was burnt to the ground. It took nearly 100 firefighters to bring the blaze under control. And on its Facebook page, the church was supportive of sodomy and it celebrated Pride Month. The minister, the Reverend Bruce McLeod, claims that the Bible was not dictated by God at all, but was written by human beings trying to make sense of their experience of God. And in a prayer, the minister referred to God as Mother. So was that fire just a coincidence, a natural disaster perhaps? Or was that fire a message from God saying, if this is what I'm going to do with a building, a man-made structure, then imagine what will happen to you if you don't repent. The altar here would be split in two. The ashes would fall to the ground because idolatrous worship will not be permitted to continue. But the word of the Lord will endure forever. But verse 4, Jeroboam rebelled against the man of God. He stretched out his hand and he called for his arrest. He says, seize him, seize him. The devil hates the preaching of God's word, you see. As soon as you preach the word on the streets, the demons rise up in anger because preaching is God's way to reach lost people. And the devil wants to keep people in their drink and in their drugs and in their immorality. He wants to keep them lost. Instead of trembling at the preacher's message, Sinners often call the police to remove the messenger, just like Jeroboam did here. There is no new thing. They strike out, they shout out they, uh, in fury, just like Jeroboam did here. 
And yet faithful men of God will continue to rebuke their sin because as we see here in verse 4, the one who saves us protects us. Notice when Jeroboam's hand was stretched out to burn incense to the golden calf, it wasn't withered, it wasn't dried up, but as soon as he stretches out his hand against the preacher, God steps in. You see, friends, of all the wickedness in the world, there is none more provoking to God than an attack on his children. And God has many weapons to deploy in our defense. So Christian, be encouraged this morning because you and your saved family are well protected. When God sends judgment, there isn't a man on earth that can reverse it. And Jeroboam couldn't pull his hand back again. His hand was withered, it was dried up, the altar was spit, the ashes were poured out, just as the man of God had said. And yet there seems to be still no repentance here from the king. He just wants to be healed. Jeroboam pleads here for help in verse 6, but he doesn't turn to his pilgrims for help. He doesn't turn to his false prophets for help. He doesn't even turn to his golden calf here for help. No, he looks to the Lord. He pleads that the man of God would pray for him. And sadly, like so many do today, he thinks more of his body that is certain to die than for his soul that will never die. Eternity means somewhere forever. Somewhere forever. I wonder, friend, are you prepared to meet the God of this Bible? Because very, very soon that appointment will be kept. It was God who struck him, you see, and only God could heal him. And friends, the time will come when those who hate our preaching will be glad of our prayers when sickness comes. And sickness always comes. So the man of God wastes no time to render good for evil here. Jesus said, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's what the man of God does. The man of God loves. He does good. He prays for his persecutor. God answers. Jeroboam's hand is restored. The king then instructs the man of God to come back to his place. Oh, he says, you must come home with me and I will give you a reward. He's probably thinking, well, this man is magical and supernatural powers. He could be of great use to me. I want his loyalty. I want him on my side. I'd rather he was for me than against me. He tries to persuade him with hospitality and a special reward. Perhaps he thinks, well, if I treat this man of God well and keep him on my side, then God will treat me well and God will look after me. It's a bit like having rosary beads tied around the rearview mirror or having a small image of St. Christopher in your car for protection. That's why unbelievers, sometimes they go to church. They want to be associated with God. They want somewhere to get married. They want somewhere to be buried. They hope that God will look favorably on them when death eventually comes. Or maybe here it's just a bribe. Perhaps he wants to wine and dine the prophet. Maybe he wants to persuade him to tone down his message, to go easy on the old wrath of God thing, to preach a message that would tickle the ear and will be accepting of all faiths, including his own. But true preachers work for God and not for man. True preachers are called to preach the word and the preaching of the gospel of Christ will always be controversial in a world that hates Christ. 
True preachers are not hired and fired like football managers. They are called to work for God and serve the people, and they will not be bought. Eating meals with someone in those days signified a bond of friendship. But Jeroboam was no friend of God, and therefore he was an enemy of the man of God. You see, God wants to save these ten tribes, these ten northern tribes. If the man of God was to accept the king's invitation, it would blur his message, it would blunt the need to repent, and so the invitation is rightly rejected. He is determined to obey God whether he lives or whether he dies. The prophet's refusal of Jeroboam's invitation to his home for a reward, it teaches us all to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to reprove them. Ecumenism is the coming together of everyone who calls themselves Christians to work together and develop closer relationships. But it is always unity at the expense of truth. The only true Christian is the one who is truly born again. God wants faithful witnesses who proclaim his word. The man of God, he wasn't going to sit down with us apostate. And we don't sit down with those who reject the word of God either. There can be no dialogue or pretending that we are all the same and that we all worship the same God. C.H. Spurgeon said, There is only one door to salvation, and that is Christ. There is only one way, and that is Christ. There's only one truth, and that is Christ. There's only one life, and that is Christ. And that's why there are many in the Broadway right now, because they will not accept that Jesus Christ is the way, is the truth, and is the life. God had told his man to deliver the message and leave, to go in there, get the job done, slap them in the face with the truth, and get out. To accept no hospitality from anyone, not to eat, not to drink, not, and even to take a different route home. He wasn't even to travel the same road as these apostates. That was the level of contempt that God had for this city. Friends, never think that we are wiser than God. If God's word causes it a sin, then your opinion and my opinion doesn't matter. If God has told us what to do and how to do it, then stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. Preach the word and pray. Preach the word and pray. And that's basically it. That's basically it. The man of God said, I want nothing to do with your false religion. And so praise God, he passes the first test. But then we see the disobedience here of the man of God. This would be the most expensive meal the man of God ever ate because it cost him his life. We're now introduced here to an old prophet in verse 11. Prophet really means preacher. So he could be a good, bad, true or false preacher. And Jesus told us how to recognize a false prophet. He said, by their fruits you shall know them. And so very quickly we're able to establish here that this man is a false prophet because verse 18 says he lied. And the Bible says all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. You don't have to go far these days to find a lying preacher. And this old man lied about getting a message from an angel to persuade the man of God to come home with him. The old prophet was corrupt. And Jesus said, a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Now, we're not really told what his motivation was. 
Maybe he was worried that the man of God would stir things up and create problems and threaten the comfortable lifestyle and he that, and all the other compromisers had become accustomed to. Maybe he was worried about losing his charity status with the government. Maybe he was like Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 who, when he saw the genuine work of God, he wanted to be part of it. It really doesn't matter what his reason was, why he deceived the man of God. The fact is he lied. And it teaches us not to believe everyone who says that they have a word from the Lord. If God speaks to you, then it doesn't matter what a committee of men speak to you. Other people can use the word of God to encourage you, warn you, correct you, but be careful when they tell you God's will for your life. Be careful. We're to test everything against the light of Scripture, even when it's claimed it came from an angel. John said, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Opposition, lies, and deceit can rise from the most shocking sources and from places that you would least expect. Satan came the first time as a roaring lion, and the man of God said no. But when Satan came the second time as an angel of light, the man of God said yes. The man of God was so close here. He had done so well. He was almost home, almost across the border, and then he fell. Wouldn't you just go, be able to go back in time and give him a good shake and say to him, what are you doing, man? What are you thinking about? Why can't you just stick to the plan? You had one job to do here. You'd love to do that with some preachers these days. You see, there's no confusion here. He understood his orders. He knew exactly what he had to do, but then the whole thing goes to pieces. Yes, he was tricked, but he shouldn't have been tricked. He had the word of the Lord. He had no excuse. He should have kept on trusting God. The psalmist says it's better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man. Friends, we have the word of the Lord today. And if you're not saved this morning, you will be held accountable for what you know. You have no excuse. The man of God had good reason to suspect the old prophet and to question his motives. He should have taken the time to seek direction and guidance from God and not have yielded to temptation so quickly. Did he think now that he knew better than God? Did he think that the prophet's house was safer to eat in than the king's house when God had forbidden him to eat in any house? If the old man had been a good prophet, he would have crossed the border. He would have condemned Jeroboam's idolatry. He would have spoken out against this false religion, but he didn't. He kept quiet. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. That is a quote often attributed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, murdered by the Nazis because he did speak out. And many do not speak out today because of the fear of man. His sons came home, told the old prophet everything that had happened that day. How this man of God from Judah had appeared, the altar had been destroyed, the king's hand was dried up, but the man of God had prayed and the king was healed. They would have told their father that the man of God had rejected the king's invitation to dine with him because God had told him not to. And now the man of God was on his way home again. And so the old prophet acts quickly and he comes up with a devious plan. You see, false prophets have always been the worst enemies of the true prophets. 
They try to destroy them, tempt them, stop them, draw them back from the work of God. And he catches up with the man of God, and in verse 14, he finds him under an oak tree. He's taking shelter here from the sun. He successfully had resisted Jeroboam, but now he's vulnerable, he's exhausted, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's weak. And the, the false prophet knows this. Satan knows this. God's servants often face greatest temptation after times of great success. When you're the most faithful, most obedient, Satan takes notice. He sets his sights on you. He shines his headlights on you. He knows when to attack. So stay close to the Lord. Stay in the word. Pray without ceasing. This is not a game. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. At first, the man of God resists the invitation. He said here in verse 17, well, God has told me to eat no bread, drink no water, but to return immediately another way. And then the old man says in verse 18, but I am a prophet of God just like you. There is nothing to fear here. I'm your friend, an ally, an angel has told me to say this. I've just received a new set of instructions, a new set of orders from heaven. You are to come home with me. God would want me to look after you. What did Paul say? Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Because, friends, God's word never, ever changes. He seems so nice. He seems so friendly. Oh, he just wanted some fellowship, some unity. I'm a prophet too, just like you. God would want this. The Bible says, you see, in the last days there will be strong delusion. There will be false prophets who will infiltrate the church, infiltrate the fellowships, even infiltrate the missionary organizations. The man of God had successfully resisted the political powers, just like Romanian pastor Richard Wurmbrand, who was jailed for 14 years by the communist government. This man of God also stood firm against government persecution and good for him. But it was in the end the curse of religion that brought him down in the end. He just didn't see it coming. Yes, friends, keep your eyes on the government but watch out for the religions. Watch out for that which pretends to be Christianity. The Bible says that he lied. And that's how we know he was a false prophet. When you compare the word of a false teacher with the word of God, they're easily exposed and identified as liars. In fact, on this very day in 1821, Mary Baker Eddy was born. She went on to found the cult known as the Christian Science. And like many cults, they deny the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And when multimillionaire TV preachers like Joel Osteen come on television and say, oh, well, 99.9% .9 of people are not bad people. Deep down, they have a good heart. Well, of course, you know right away that there are false preachers preaching a false gospel with false promises from a false God because the Bible, the Word of God, says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Osteen says almost everyone is good, but the Apostle Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Osteen says 99.9% .9 of people are good people, but the Bible says that 100% of people are bad people, totally depraved, and that's why every single one of us need a Savior. And the Bible says that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world.
God will never, ever contradict his own word. And there is no new revelation. God's word is complete. It is his final authority. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and reliable. But people love the words of a false teacher because they preach what they want to hear. They like to be told that they are good people. The man of God should have resisted. He had received the unchangeable word of God and should have shunned every other word because every other way is the way of death. And sadly, that was the outcome for him. Jesus said, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. But the man of God, he had heard the word of God, but he didn't keep it and he lost the blessing. Now, it might have seemed logical and harmless, even sensible, to grab a bite of lunch before heading for home, but he was disobeying God. And it is our job at all times to trust and obey. That's it. Trust and obey. So what does he do? Well, he compromises. And compromise is a dirty, dirty word when it comes to the things of God. He allows himself to be tricked and deceived here by this liar. And in verse 19, he went back home with him. Friends, 26 times we are told in the New Testament, do not be deceived. And we have the word of God, so none of us should be deceived. Just trust and obey. Thirdly and finally, the man of God is punished. The man of God now naively believes the prophet. He goes home with him to eat and to drink. And do you know what? He probably sat down and said grace before the meal, but the harm was already done. And God now condemns his servant to death. And this time he uses the false prophet to deliver his message in verse 21. The false prophet, he cries out to the man of God as if, as if thinking to himself, well, if he is going to die for a sin that I have led him into, then what is going to happen to me? The false prophet had lied about the angel speaking to him, but now he tells the truth about God speaking to him. You see, God's word is truth, even when it is spoken by a liar. A false prophet will sometimes speak true words. Balaam was meant to curse Israel, but every time he opened his mouth, the real word came out. God's method to get the gospel to the lost is to use those who once opposed the gospel. Isn't that amazing? There was a time when every one of us were false prophets, but now by the grace of God we are true prophets. We are all sinful and we can all be biased, but that will never alter or change the perfect truth of God. We must discern what is true and what is false. But God's word is always truth, no matter who speaks it. So don't reject the word of God because you don't like the messenger. The man of God would pay with his life for disobeying God. But if that wasn't bad enough, he wouldn't be permitted the honor of being buried with his own people in his own land. In verse 23 and 24, he would begin the journey home, but he would never arrive home. Now, we may wonder this morning why this wicked prophet who told the lie went unpunished, while the holy man of God who was drawn into sin by the false prophet was suddenly and severely punished. King Jeroboam, he set up a false religion that would damn tens of thousands to hell forever. The false prophet had lied about the angel to cause the man of God to sin. The man of God, he had only ate a piece of bread, drank a cup of water, so it looks like the least of sins is punished, but the greater sins are unpunished, are left unpunished. 
Why he was a good man. Why he was a faithful man, a courageous man, a bold man, and a brave man who did what most of us wouldn't have the guts to do. Why, for one offense, did he die the death of a criminal when the old lying prophet seems to have gotten off the hook here? Well, folks, you see, the wages of every sin is death. Not just the wages of big sins. Big or small, the quantity or the quality of sins, it doesn't matter. The results are always the same. Death. Death. So don't think this morning that you're just a wee sinner and that God will let you off the hook because he won't. You need to repent. That's why the preaching of the cross is vital to all types of outcasts. No one gets off the hook. The whole world was condemned to death when one disobedient man ate a piece of fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now this disobedient man would be condemned for eating a slice of bread. This is how serious God takes sin. No one escapes God's justice. There is a judgment to come when those who sinned the most and suffered the least in the world will receive justice according to their works. The Bible says God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. The false prophet then saddles the donkey for the man of God in verse 23. Notice how nice he is, and yet he's so poisonous. He sends him on to his death. And friends, that's what false preachers do to sinners with their weaselly and watery words. They send poor lost sinners to their death. God has prepared a lion just as he prepared a big fish for Jonah. And the man of God is killed. The false prophet now realizes that the word of the Lord he received was true. And even though he had caused the young man's death, he now mourns for him and buries him in his own tomb. Perhaps the man of God's death has finally spoken to the old prophet, who now refers to him as my brother here in verse 30. The old prophet makes his own funeral arrangements in verse 31, and he instructs his sons to bury him beside the man of God. He was a false prophet and a lying prophet in life, but now it seems he wished to die as a true prophet. To be buried with him was to be identified with him and with his God. And of course, it's so, so important that we all die well. Now, when we look closely at this story, we see in the man of God a picture or foreshadowing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The man of God had crossed the border from Judah to Israel to expose and condemn Jeroboam's sin. The Lord Jesus Christ crossed the border between heaven and earth to expose and condemn our sin. The man of God's message was authenticated when Jeroboam's hand was miraculously restored. The son of God's ministry was authenticated through many signs and wonders and miracles. The death of the man of God seems to have changed the heart of the old prophet. And the death of the son of God changed the heart of the centurion soldier who declared the Lord Jesus to be the son of God. And of course, his death has been changing hearts ever since. Paul said, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. The man of God was buried in another man's tomb. The son of God was buried for three days in another man's tomb. 
The old prophet wanted to be buried with the man of God. And we have been buried with Christ as well, because Paul said, therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death. And in the end, the old prophet prefers or refers to the man of God as my brother. Jesus calls us his brothers because the Bible says he is not ashamed to call them brethren. However, there is one, one big difference between the man of God and the son of God. The man of God was seduced by the world and died for his sin. But the Son of God was never seduced by the world. He was sinless. But at the very prime of his life, he died for our sins. Both deaths brought people to the Lord. The old prophet was brought to the Lord through the death of the man of God. And the Bible says, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat, fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Like the man of God, we will die because we are sinners. But like the Son of God, we will rise again unto eternal life if, if we are saved and born again. And we're born again by repenting and trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. May the Lord bless these few thoughts to our hearts this morning. We're going to turn in closing to hymn number 457. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. We'll sing the first and the last verses of 457 and we'll stand as we sing.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for your unchanging word today. Father, we are in an evil world. Um, society seems to be against us. Government seems to be against us. Religion seems to be against us. But we thank you, Lord, this morning that you're sovereign, you're in control, you're on your throne. And Lord, you've given us a job to do, one job, to trust and obey the word. Help us, Lord, to be obedient to the word. Lord, you've reminded us this morning of the consequences if we don't, but also the divine protection upon us if we do. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in these last days, never to compromise. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us this morning of the seriousness of sin, but thank you, Lord, that you cross the border to seek and to save the lost. And we pray if there's lost souls in this meeting this morning, that they would simply repent and trust in you for their eternal salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.